0: One thing that was sort of funny is that as we started to develop this, we talked about having like a one pager with our final recommendations. And what we realized is that that was a, a comically short ambition, or that was just like very different from what we ended up producing, which I think just goes to show that there are a lot of areas where there, there is consensus and where there is interest in, in working across the aisle and where there is political uh, viability. because. We really produced a quite a detailed set of recommendations that were much more than, than one page long.
1: The voice you're hearing in that opening clip is the one of Mallory Huggins. She is a senior project director at Keystone Policy Center and also the director of the Keystone Energy Board. She is referencing the results of one of the more ambitious projects Keystone has taken on recently, one that I'm excited to share with you today. I'm Marcus Chavez, communications director at Keystone Policy Center. Thank you for listening. I continue to be amazed and humbled at the response from those of you who are listening to this podcast, and I just want to briefly express my appreciation before today's episode, which focuses on developing consensus on climate change policy. The climate crisis continues to present significant risks to our planet and everyday livelihood. We need only look to last month's winter storm in Texas as the most recent example of its carnage. Those severe climate events were at one time considered rare, but they aren't anymore. Just think about what we've seen in recent years from extreme wildfires in the West to flooding in the Midwest and throughout the world, to significantly more powerful storms like hurricanes and typhoons. All of this is coinciding with record rising temperatures and a startling decline in the amounts of Arctic sea ice. And despite a significant drop in carbon emissions as a result of the pandemic, there continues to be a record level amounts of carbon in the atmosphere. And I have no doubt what you're thinking as I list off all of these climate concerns. I'm sure I can sense your eyes rolling right now and hear the sighs of exasperation. Climate policy is just so polarized in this country. We've been talking about this for years, decades even, and nobody can agree on anything. The political and economic viewpoints in this discussion diverge too much that it makes it impossible to see progress. Well, on the contrary, reality is much different. In fact, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. There's actually a lot more agreement on climate policy, not only on both sides of the political aisle, but across numerous sectors. And I'm here today to tell you all about it. you're already familiar with the ethos of the Keystone Policy Center. Get policymakers and leaders in a room and work through conflicts they previously thought were insurmountable. Well, that's an oversimplified description, but you get the idea. And in the era of COVID-19, the room where it happens is a virtual one. In mid-2020, Keystone began discussing with the Great Plains Institute about collaborating on a formal dialogue that would develop policy proposals aimed at reducing or eliminating carbon dioxide from our sources of energy. The Great Plains Institute is an organization dedicated to engaging and collaborating with people, organizations, and communities to craft energy solutions that benefit both the economy and the environment. Doug Scott, who is GPI's Vice President of Electricity and Efficiency, also serves on Keystone's Energy Board and was the driving force behind developing this dialogue.
2: Well, I've been uh, on the Energy Board for Keystone for a, a long time, and uh, you know we, we get periodic updates from... Uh, the Hill. Uh, and it, it struck me at one point that a lot of the discussions we were having were all of the things that they couldn't talk about, um, just because they're fairly intractable issues. And I thought uh, Keystone, much like Great Plains Institute, uh, where I work, um, you know, is really good about bringing people together who have very different opinions on, on a variety of subjects and, and trying to see if there's some kind of consensus or some kind of of way to try to, to bridge some of those gaps. And so my thinking was, wouldn't it be good if we could get a, a group of folks together uh, that, that brought very different, uh, both disciplines that they worked on in the energy field, but also very different opinions about about what some of the solutions would be uh, and see if there was something that we could do that, that would be uh, practical, would, uh, would be able to drive decarbonization, um, but also be uh, appealing to both sides of the aisle, and so that was the kind of the, the genesis for the for the discussions.
1: The decarbonization dialogue was born, and Keystone and GPI got to work convening experts from different sectors to develop recommendations for near-term federal policies to drive economy-wide and equitable decarbonization. The dialogue primarily focused on the power, transportation, and agricultural sectors. The cross-sector nature of the discussion is a significant attribute. It certainly made a discussion like this more complicated, but it also served as an opportunity for leaders to reveal mutual interests across these three sectors in a way that other processes have not. But as if working among multiple sectors wasn't ambitious enough, Keystone and Great Plains Institute also wanted this dialogue to have one more characteristic. It also had to be bipartisan.
2: You know, the the idea of, of, of having something that that you know, you can walk into a room, and it doesn't really matter if the room is all Republicans or all Democrats, or if they're rural states, or if they come. But but people can see value in doing the things that you're that you're looking at. To me, that has really great um, durability, and 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 will will be the way we need to move forward. You know, when we started this, we didn't know what was going to happen either with the White House because uh, it was before the election, um, and we also didn't know what was going to happen in Congress, but. We knew that that it was likely to be that any kind of, you know, way to move forward substantially on these issues, congressionally, was going to need to have bipartisan support, and so that was the that was the lens through which we viewed um, the recommendations, recognizing that, you know, they they may not all have bipartisan support, but as a as a combination, as a collection of recommendations, uh, we think that there are things in there that that both parties uh, can support, and it's. That's really key to Keystone. That's, that's part of their mission, uh, and it's really key to ours as well.
1: Now, just pause for a second and think about it. Keystone and Great Plains Institute were setting out to have a multi-sector, bipartisan dialogue on one of the most polarized topics in our country in an era when polarization is perhaps at an all-time high. But this is when I circle back to what I discussed earlier at the start of this episode. Yes, the discussion surrounding climate change is politicized. There's no denying that. But it didn't always used to be. And when you actually get down to the nitty gritty of policy and the impact it can have on both the environment and the economy, well, that's where leaders on both the progressive and conservative sides of the aisle agree. It's the reason why these discussions are so important and so impactful, because if you never have the discussion, you never actually get to the common ground. Huggins explains.
0: On the bipartisan front, um... Something that some of the participants have said is that, you know, if you can get past the ideological conversations about how to address climate change, there are actually a lot of solutions that if you start to talk more about the the technical ways to decarbonize um, or technical ways to address climate change, there's a lot more in common um, and a lot more solutions that uh, that will have bipartisan support and consensus around them if you can, can get below that, that um Partisan ideology level. Another thing we heard uh, from our members a lot is just that that you don't have to be against everything you're not explicitly for. Um, so this idea that there's a lot of tools in the toolbox, and even if you know one organization isn't going to go all in on a certain particular solution, they might recognize that it's it's the solution that's best for you know another another company or another industry, and and not not stand up explicitly against that just because it's not what they focus on themselves. And so that was the spirit of the dialogue in many ways.
1: Here's Doug Scott with more on there being much more agreement on these issues than people may expect.
2: The strange thing about energy or environmental policy is that um, if you go back, not, I mean, a ways, um, but, but since I've been alive, um, it used to be a bipartisan issue. You know, energy and environment used to be for the most part a bipartisan issue it got a lot more partisan as time went on. But even in that partisan nature, there are places where you can find agreement and and it's more a matter of how you do something rather than if you do something. And so for years, we kind of lived under this really false narrative last several years that, well, if if you have strong environmental or energy policy, that's necessarily going to be bad for the economy. I don't think that that that's I don't think that was ever true. But but I think more and more people are are finding out, well, you know, I could be in a I can be in a red state and I can support wind power. Uh, not necessarily because I, I want wind power to replace fossil fuels, but because wind power is a really good economic development tool for our state. And so i can I can see that happening, um, you know, for us. We can double down on that and and do something good for our state. so the the idea that I think that that the way we work at GPI and the way that the the keystone works is is trying not to accentuate the differences, trying
1: to figure out where there can be some common ground and try to move forward. Now, the members of the decarbonization dialogue were not starting from scratch. In fact, Congress actually passed climate change legislation as part of the end-of-year omnibus bill at the end of the Trump administration in December 2020. As part of its discussion, the decarbonization dialogue effort acknowledged this legislation and other recommendations related to climate change in Congress. It also recognized the myriad climate-related actions at the state and local levels, and various experts weighing in on the right pathways to decarbonization. The goal of this dialogue was to build on those existing efforts instead of just duplicating them.
0: We tried to root this in existing um, efforts and tried to start our conversations by looking at other recommendations that have already come out or other groups that have already weighed in on these issues. Um, We also started by uh, bringing in experts in each of the three sectors and asking them, um, what the they see as some of the the key bipartisan um, opportunities that would have a big impact on decarbonization but also be politically viable and used remarks from those outside experts to to narrow our focus at the outset recognizing that we were going to try to tackle quite a bit over just six to nine months. So that set us up to to dig into details relatively quickly with having that what we called a policy scan and and having those expert uh, perspectives. Uh, as a foundation.
1: After months of meetings and discussions, the decarbonization dialogue released its recommendations last month, along with a supporting report that gives background on the dialogue. The recommendations are both cross-cutting and sector-specific and prioritize impact on emissions and political viability, with consideration for equity, cost, and economic recovery, among other factors. The recommendations are extremely detailed, which speaks to the fact that the group went above and beyond the so-called lowest common denominator for agreement.
0: One thing that was sort of funny is that, as we started to develop this, we talked about having like a one pager with our final recommendations. And what we realized is that that was a comically uh, uh, short ambition or that was just like very different from what we ended up producing. it the uh, which I think just goes to show that there are a lot of areas where there there is consensus and where there is interest in in working across the aisle and where there is political uh, viability um, because we really produced quite a detailed set of recommendations that were much more than, than one page long.
1: Some of the members of the dialogue participated in a webinar the week the recommendations and supporting report were released. Rich Powell, executive director at ClearPath, an organization whose mission is to accelerate breakthrough innovations that reduce emissions in the energy and industrial sectors, was one of those dialogue members who participated in the webinar. Among other things, he found the breadth and bipartisan nature of the approach served as a strength of the dialogue.
3: I do think that the strength was in the broad portfolio of approaches and, and technologies that were considered and taken on in this. You know, in the context of your earlier remarks, I think you know the, the tragedy unfolding this week in, in Texas has really hammered home that we need a. Really, really broad uh, approach when we think about the future of a low-carbon power sector uh, and the resiliency that a really broad portfolio of technologies will bring. And I think the, our recommendations uh, acknowledge that really broad portfolio. It sort of, you know, um, w- we got a we got a group of people everywhere from a right-of-center organization like mine to a professor at Vermont Law School to to agree to a really broad set of recommendations. And I think we really had in mind the idea that we need to all stop being against the things we're not specifically for or we all need to eventually become for the things that we're not specifically for. And so, you know, there's everything in there from, from recommendations on preserving the existing nuclear fleet that, you know, my organization is very excited about to uh, things in places that, you know, like transmission policy where my organization doesn't spend a lot of time working but I'm happy to enthusiastically uh, support those, uh, those recommendations. And so I, I do think that the breadth and the bipartisan nature really uh, were a strength and not a hindrance.
1: Another dialogue participant was Lynn Scarlett, Chief External Affairs Officer for the Nature Conservancy. She emphasized that the consideration of additional factors like equity, cost, and economic viability build a
4: strong foundation
1: for action moving forward.
4: Rather than focusing on the policy particulars in terms of the bipartisan potential, I want to reflect for a moment on a couple of the undergirding considerations that have cut across the deliberations. And those are that they take into account equity and impacts on communities. So looking for bipartisanship and solutions that will stick, we need not only to look at the emission reductions, but how do they affect people and are they fair? Are they take into account the need for flexibility? So that gives the wiggle room to tailor to circumstance. Uh, Of course, we don't have all the solutions. So there's a big focus on R&D and innovation and new technologies. And then as... Uh, Others have said the importance of linkages. This is a systems problem. We can't tackle each of these things individually. Um, And they emphasize the doable. So I think those are the ingredients for rallying people around in a bipartisan and multi-participant way to get some solutions on the table. I think they provide good, strong foundations for for action. Um, Of course, we do need more. Uh, there's no question that even with this lengthy list of, of um, opportunities, there's still more that needs to be done and in some sectors, sectors that weren't the focus of this. But this is a tremendously good um, start and a good uh, foundational basis, I think, to build bipartisan support for action.
1: Anjali Marak, the global sustainability strategy and analysis leader for Corteva Agriscience, agreed that these recommendations are a starting point but she emphasized that the consensus-based nature of the dialogue will accelerate future engagement.
0: It's been
5: said, doing the work takes time. Consensus is an accelerator, especially in uh, the, the structure and the setup that we now have for the next two to four years. Uh, let's not lose that as we move forward. I think that that is, that is what what um, what sets sets us up to move forward with a healthy starting point and on a healthy track. I think so long as these recommendations continue to be further developed with stakeholders and communities engaged and that momentum that comes from expanding that view of stakeholders across the sectors uh, in the way that we have as part of this dialogue will be extremely uh, important and continue to fuel that, that progress fuel that acceleration. Um, certainly science, the breadth of tools available, the choice and the innovation that is provided and that is afforded to, to find those solutions will become really important. But I know that the question that Jonathan asked, you know, the ways in which ag sector overlaps, this is, this is the benefit. This is in some ways the business case for sustainability and resilience as part of the transformation in America.
1: All of this content, the webinar, the recommendations, and the supporting report are available on Keystone's website at keystone.org. I encourage you to look them up and dive into the content coming out of this dialogue. So now that the dialogue is over, what happens? Well, as the participants mentioned, this is just a starting point. Outreach continues with policymakers to present these recommendations, which have cross-sector bipartisan support which is appealing to any elected official. The individual working groups are also continuing their dialogue on policy within their respective sectors. All of the members of this dialogue want to keep their connection to it in some way or another. There are still complicated and divisive issues to work through, but these members know what it will take to work through those issues. And that is the philosophy that transcends this entire project. Participants in this dialogue succeeded at developing ambitious, detailed recommendations. They didn't shy away from the difficult discussions, and they proved that you can have those difficult discussions without devolving into contentious argument. It's non-siloed thinking in a fragmented and siloed society. We've heard it many times today. You don't have to be against something you're not explicitly for. And it is that kind of an approach... And willingness to genuinely engage that leads to sustainable, impactful change. Keynotes is a production of the Keystone Policy Center, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based out of Keystone, Colorado, which, for more than 45 years, has empowered leaders to reach common higher ground. This episode has been made possible by a contribution from the Denver Foundation. If you would like to learn more about the Keystone Policy Center, visit our website at Keystone.org.